Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like when the tailgate party shows up at your house after the big win. Everything's great until the hot plate gets too hot for the tablecloth. Now your kitchen's up in smoke. And if you don't have the right home insurance coverage, the cost to fix this could sideline your savings. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Not available in every state based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Jonas Knox. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com forward slash credit card. This is the best of Outkick the Coverage with Clay Travis on Fox Sports Radio. I'm Clay Travis. This is Outkick the Coverage. And I want to start off talking about a huge bit of our audience down in the state of Texas where it is absolutely brutal right now, uh, especially in the Houston area where I know lots of you are listening right now. Um, want to make sure that you know that we're all thinking about you. And uh, that if you are out there right now and you've got the ability, you can donate $10 to the relief efforts going on in the Houston area. Thousand-year flood is what it is being called. And to contextualize that, it's exactly what it says, that if the city of Houston exists for a thousand years, one time in that thousand years, they will have a flood like this one that is going on right now. I believe, and Jason Martin, can you confirm this is correct? The text is $10 to 90999. Am I correct in that? I believe that I am. If you go to your phones right now and you pull them out and you text 90999, you will send $10 to the American Red Cross. I have done that. It's an easy thing to do. You guys can do that as well. But again, for everybody out there listening right now, we've got a huge audience in Houston and the surrounding Texas region. Uh, Stay as safe as you can if you are able only to stay in touch via the radio. um, I hope that uh, that we can help you out a little bit um, by uh, just taking you back into the world of of sports for as uh, short of a period as it may be. But again... 90999 is the Houston Red Cross text number that you can send out and $10 automatically will go to the relief effort from you for doing that. Obviously, many people, you can give a lot more. 
I saw J.J. Watt is attempting to raise, I believe it's half a million dollars now. Uh, there are uh, a lot of different individuals trying to do their best. And what I have seen of that area, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the, uh, the city of Houston, fourth largest city in the nation's area, is that uh, the people come together and do their best even in the face of the worst. And I lived through a situation like this, uh, basically a 500-year, 1,000-year flood in the city of Nashville where I live hit, God, it's probably been seven or eight years ago now, uh, basically, which, uh, which I mean, the city of Nashville was, there was standing water downtown everywhere. Um, biggest flood in 500 or 1,000 years for Nashville as well. And uh, it's an overwhelming experience. So for everybody out there, uh, probably a lot of you listening right now, you know, helping uh, a lot of you doing uh, everything that you can. And uh, obviously there's a big audience of people there. So I wanted to start the show saying uh, we wish, we're wishing you the best and uh, and hoping for uh, you guys continuing to be able to triumph over what are incredibly trying conditions. So that's the big story going on. If you haven't paid attention to that, it is uh, it is kind of earth shattering to see some of the uh, some of the devastation that has been wrought there. And frankly, you won't know exactly how bad that devastation is until the waters recede and you can actually see what took place there. Uh, but some of the pictures and video and imagery that has uh, already emerged from that city. Uh, show you that it's going to be a a long time of recovery in what has been a a crushing natural disaster. So, best of luck to Houston and the surrounding areas in Texas, uh, and uh, hopefully we can do something a little bit more than what we're doing right now eventually uh, on behalf of uh, OutKick and all our audience down there. Having said that, let's move into much less serious things, but something that I think a lot of you were watching last night, I or, or sorry, Saturday night, I ordered the fight. We have talked a lot about what Mayweather-McGregor was going to be like on this show since it was announced. And I watched the fight like a lot of you did late on Saturday night. It wasn't until after midnight Eastern that McGregor and Mayweather finally got into the ring. And I've got to tell you, I think as much as Conor McGregor and Floyd Mayweather, we talked about it. And as much as I expected Floyd Mayweather, if you listen to this show, to go 50-0, and I think the biggest winner by far was Conor McGregor. Because in his first ever boxing match, he went 10 rounds with maybe the greatest pound-for-pound boxer to ever lace up gloves. McGregor is 40 years old. I mean, sorry, he's 28 years old. Mayweather is 40. Mayweather is going to ride off into the sunset. Maybe he'll do another fight. My bet would actually be that he never does another fight. Meanwhile, Conor McGregor is just 28 years old, and he has so many different options that are out there for him now. He can go back to MMA and fight Nate Diaz and make $50, $60 million. He's forever exploded the dynamic about exactly what MMA fighters are worth. He can go fight somebody else in boxing and produce, I think, a huge audience. This story, to me, is an extraordinary one. He went into the ring and fought for 10 rounds against one of the greatest fighters, if not the greatest fighter, pound for pound, in the history of the sport, and didn't look out of sorts at all. 
he was better in this fight than Pacquiao was in his fight. Now, you can say that Floyd Mayweather had control of the fight. You can say that Floyd Mayweather fought him more aggressively because he did not fear being knocked out. But I actually thought Mayweather took a lot more damage in this fight than any fight recently that I've seen Floyd Mayweather be involved in. And in the first round, McGregor caught him pretty good with that uppercut. McGregor, I think, won the first two or three rounds on the card. Now, partly that was by design because Floyd Mayweather wanted Conor McGregor to tire himself out. And there's no doubt that McGregor didn't have the endurance to get it to a 12-round decision and that Mayweather really kind of put it on McGregor down the stretch. Maybe he could have knocked him out in the ninth round. Really, the ninth round was when he completely took control. But I got to tell you, I think that McGregor is by far the biggest winner here because all the people who watched McGregor fight Mayweather are probably likely to end up wanting to watch McGregor whatever he does next. And I think he vastly exceeded expectations. I don't even think it's close in terms of what I expected versus what I got. I did not think there was any way that Conor McGregor was going to be able to win this fight. And I do think, even if they got a rematch, conditioning-wise, I don't know that McGregor could have done any more because I, I just I, I don't know that you can prepare for the amount of time and what it's required to be in a boxing match like this one without having basically spent a career boxing. I mean, the reason why Mayweather is such in, in such incredible shape is because he's been training as a boxer for 35 years. Whereas Conor McGregor just stepped in, and you could see in all the different ways that they were clasping one another how frequently McGregor's natural reaction was to go back to MMA. I said that I thought in this fight it would have been a lot more exciting if we had known that if McGregor lasted 11 rounds, then in the 12th round they got to fight MMA style. Now, maybe he still wouldn't have lasted at all, but that would have added a lot of pressure to this fight. If McGregor had been able to go 11 rounds, then in 12 rounds, all of a sudden the rules were out the window and the 12th round was an MMA fight. And then everybody would have been fighting and arguing about whether or not there was any possibility of Conor McGregor being able to get it to a 12th round. But everybody that I watched the fight with, good group of people, probably a lot of you watching it in groups as well, I thought it was insanely entertaining. I thought it was well worth the money. I thought that sham or not, in the initial preliminary aspect of this idea, the fact that Conor McGregor, a guy who had never fought in a professional boxing match, managed to pull this off, fight against the greatest pound-for-pound fighter potentially ever, and acquit himself so well that he got more hits on Mayweather than just about anybody who's ever fought Mayweather, with the exception of a 12-round match a few years ago. I just, I, I, I'm kind of in awe over how good Conor McGregor was and over how much he has burnished his brand for the years ahead. I don't know how many more times McGregor's going to fight, but I think it's going to be something that everybody pays attention to. And I thought even the way it finished with somehow Conor McGregor 
unable to go down, out on his feet, but unwilling. And I think we have audio of McGregor, if you guys have this, can pull it up, of McGregor saying, at least let him put me down on the ground. Let me listen to that, because I think this also helped Conor McGregor. He's like, look, I've been choked on national television. I've been choked out in, by Nate Diaz on TV, at least to let him put me on the ground. Here was Conor McGregor immediately after the fight. That's exactly what it is. It's fatigue. That's why I thought the ref could have just let it keep going. Let, let me go down. Let the man put me down. Like wobbly and fatigue. That's energy. That's not damage. I'm clear-headed. And he was. I mean, immediately after the fight, I mean, it was hard to, to look at him and think that there was any kind of long-range damage that he had faced from that fight at all. Now, of course, this is the same guy who was able to be interviewed after getting choked out in an MMA fight. I mean, it's amazing to me how often MMA fighters get choked out, you know, see stars, literally pass out, and then next thing you know, they're back up being interviewed. But I thought both he and Mayweather did fantastically well. I think they created probably what's going to end up being the biggest pay-per-view buy in the history of American sports. And frankly, how good was it if they fought again? I would encourage everybody that it was worth the 100 bucks to go back and buy it again. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick, the coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific on Fox Sports Radio and the iHeartRadio app. Said we're going to pivot to football. One, the Julian Edelman injury is, to me, just further evidence. I saw the math, unless this changed last night, there have been 24 guys who have torn their ACLs so far in the NFL preseason. I find the NFL preseason to be a complete joke. I don't know why we can have Alabama play Florida State, Michigan play Florida, the two best games of the college football opening weekend happening this Saturday. And we're going to have 17 and 18-year-old kids, literally, whose last game was in a high school football stadium in front of 500 people, now playing in front of millions without a single preseason game. And in the NFL, we need preseason football. I'm not saying that you can't have a couple of games. I think four is insanity. I really do. And I almost would be of the opinion that I wouldn't play a single starter in these games. I I just, I don't think the payoff is worth it. I would rather my guys get into football shape in the first couple of weeks and not be firing on all cylinders for the first couple of weeks than have people get injured and miss the entire season in games that really don't matter very much. And I just don't think that football is a sport that can be played at half speed. Now, yes, are there five or six guys on every roster that you don't know what the bottom of the roster is going to look like? 53 guys are going to make the roster By and large, just about every team in an NFL right now when they start camp, there's about 47 guys, probably, 45 to 47, that most teams feel pretty confident are going to be on the roster. So at most, there's seven or eight spots open, and that can depend on how the health is at other positions, everything else. And I know you got over 90 guys or whatever the math is in the camp. Let those guys play if you need to. Let the bottom... 20 you know take the top 25 of your roster off don't ever play them that's what I would do it just drags on forever I don't think it makes sense I think this is a big topic of discussion for the NFL when the next collective bargaining agreement comes up if I were waving my magic wand and they said Clay what can you do to make the NFL better than it already is 
I would argue that we should go to 18 regular season games and knock it down to two preseason games and almost hardly play the starters at all and add in a bunch of bye weeks and continue the NFL season so that it finishes at the end of February. That's what I would do. I would roll out the NFL season so it always ends on President's Day weekend and turn President's Day weekend into basically a national sports holiday. Because right now, President's Day weekend is like that that holiday in February that some of you get that you're always kind of surprised that you get. It's a week that I'm going to be on vacation pretty much every year that I do this show. Because I'm like, why wouldn't I take President's Day weekend? I'm not going to... That Monday, it's a good time to be off after the Super Bowl. And I can get my kids out of school. We'll miss a few days of school. We can go away for a week. Because I don't take any time off. And just about nobody in my business does. From football season... The only day that I'll miss, the only days that I'll miss, Thanksgiving and Christmas, between now and February. So I'm locked and loaded for about six months straight. And almost no one in my business who's who covers sports or is in the sports industry will take off any days during football season. Because this is the season that dominates our industry. And so, to me, the way to finish off football even better than it ends now would be to turn it into a long holiday. So that Super Bowl Monday is the immediate aftermath of the Super Bowl. And that turns into like a national sporting calendar holiday. But I just find, I mean, of all the things that go on right now in sports, to me, the NFL preseason is most in need of reworking. And I'm a season ticket holder, so the money at stake here really doesn't matter, right? I mean, the money at stake, I would pay, I said this on the show the other day, so I, if you're an NFL season ticket holder, and I'm sure a lot of you out there all over the country are, there are 10 games that you have to pay for. And I don't have really high-end seats. I'm a regular guy when it comes to my seats. I'm paying $75 per ticket, and I've got a couple. So I pay $150 per game times 10, $1,500 basically a year for my season tickets. If you told me that I had to pay, so $1,500 divided by 8, somebody do the math on that, I would pay basically 20% more for my regular season tickets and give up the two games in the preseason that I have tickets for and not feel worse for the wear for that. If you told me right now you're going to have to pay, whatever the math is on that, $87 per, I think that's right, $87 per regular season game, I'd be perfectly fine with it. You wouldn't hear me complain at all about the fact that my season ticket price went up if I had to do that. $100 a regular season, whatever. Because I'm paying for the regular season. So the fact that I have to pay for two preseason games, the same cost, is to me a a fundamentally broken aspect of this system. But I look at what's going on right now in college football, and we have got two incredible games. Lots of good games, but I would say two incredible, you have to make sure you're going to watch these games. I always like to look at the college football schedule and basically say, okay, If I only had to pick one or two games to watch on Saturday, what would I watch? A lot of people have different obligations. College football, I think, is better than the NFL in terms of its viewership because you can watch every game that matters. Starting at 11 a.m. on pretty much every Saturday, I will watch college football games from 11 a.m. to 2 a.m. That's what I do on Saturday. I sit and I watch every college football game that matters at all. Now, I didn't watch this opening weekend, so I kind of feel like that didn't really count. I watched Mayweather McGregor. I ran around with my family. 
I wasn't plugged in to college football last weekend. I will be this weekend. And I will start on Thursday when I watch Ohio State play against Indiana. I can't wait to watch that game. That's a pretty good Thursday night football game. How good are the Buckeyes going to be? They're going on the road against Indiana. 21-point favorites. I'll pay attention to the FS1 game. How's Oklahoma State going to look? Top 10 team. Mike Gundy maybe the most underrated coach in America. That's the opening Thursday night. Friday night, I'll even watch. A lot of this is going to be because I'm gambling. But I'll put some money on. I've already bet. I've got money. I'm an idiot, maybe. I took Rutgers plus 31. I'll tell you in advance. And I took the over in Ohio State, Indiana. But by the time we get to Saturday, we get to Saturday, which games am I 100% going to watch? And if I could only pick two, which would I watch on Saturdays? Not even a challenge. Michigan, Florida. Going to be on at 3.30 Eastern on ABC from down in Dallas, I believe. And then I'll be at this game, and I can't wait to see it. Florida State-Bama. As good of a game as has ever existed to begin a college football season. Florida State and Alabama are going to trot out 18-year-old kids who have never played in a college football game before. And their first game is going to be this massive theater opening the new arena, opening the new football stadium in Atlanta, and it's going to be unlike anything we've ever seen before because we've never had an opener that I can remember between number one and number three. So that game at 8 o'clock Eastern, I'll be in the, in, the, uh, in the football stadium there. And by the way, we are doing the show live on Monday and Tuesday from Atlanta. Monday and Tuesday, we'll be doing the radio show live from Atlanta. Atlanta because they've got two really awesome games. They've got Florida State Alabama on that Saturday and then on Monday the only game that's going on the only game in town because Monday Night Football has not started yet Tennessee plays Georgia Tech. So that is the game for basically Monday Night Football eight o'clock on Monday and by the way we're not taking off Labor Day. A lot of people will take Labor Day off because Labor Day is a holiday. I, I don't ever take Labor Day off because that's the first Monday after the college football season. And I know everybody, even if you're working, wants to wake up and listen. And frankly, a lot of you don't get that day off. So we will be in live a week from today on Labor Day. Not a long weekend here. We'll be live with you guys, as we always are, from 6 to 9 a.m. Eastern. But both those games are going on in Atlanta. But if you had to pick two games to watch, I think just about every single person out there right now would say, I want to watch Michigan-Florida, and I want to watch Alabama-Florida State. Now... Alabama-Florida State is a massive game. But whatever happens in that game, if the other team wins their next 12 games, it won't matter what happened in this game, right? In other words, if Alabama beats Florida State and Florida State goes on and wins the ACC and wins their next 12 games, then this opener won't matter and Alabama and Florida State very well could finish the season playing in Atlanta again because that's where the national title game is going to be this year. If Alabama loses to Florida State and then wins the next 12 and runs through the SEC like a hot knife through butter, which is what they've been doing so far, that game won't matter. I got a crazy idea for you. I think the game that matters the most in week one in college football could be Michigan against Florida. I'm going to make the case for why Michigan versus Florida is the biggest, most important game in college football 
for that exact reason. Because I think Alabama and Florida State are both so good, whoever loses this game is probably still in the mix to make the playoff. I think certainly whoever wins the game then has an extra game they can lose and they'll still be in the mix for the playoff. But Michigan-Florida, I think, may have more at stake. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick the Coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific. I said before we went to break that I was going to make the case for why Florida-Michigan is the most important game of the opening weekend. Not the best. Best game is Alabama against Florida State. But I think at this point in time, Jimbo Fisher and Nick Saban have done enough that whoever wins that game, and I think it's going to be Bama. I think Bama is going to beat Florida State. You look at what Nick Saban's teams have typically done in the first game of the season. They show up ready to play. I think Bama is going to beat Florida State, but I don't think it's the death nail for Florida State's season by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, I think Florida State will be favored in every other game that they play for the rest of the season. I think that's true, right? Am I correct that Florida State, do they go to Clemson? I might be, they might have to go to Clemson. Um, and if that's true, pull up that schedule for me, Jason Martin. I haven't, I, I can't remember right now. Yeah, it's at Clemson it's on at November Clemson. 11th. So they might be an underdog at Clemson. Maybe. We'll see what happens with Clemson. Still a relatively young team. Obviously, Deshaun Watson rotating off. We'll see whether or not they're favored on the road at Clemson. Otherwise, they would be favored in every game, including the ACC title game. The rest of the way. Doesn't mean they'll win them, but it means they'll be favored. To me, Florida and Michigan is an unbelievably fascinating game. First of all, let's start with Michigan. Usually, if you are going to come in and be a dominant head coach, the second or the third year is when you make your statement about being dominant. So far, Jim Harbaugh is 20-6 and six in two seasons at Michigan. 20 wins, 6 losses. But, and this is important, but he has not finished better than third in the East of the Big Ten since he got to Michigan. There's been a lot of hype about how good Michigan's going to be, about how unbelievable the impact of Jim Harbaugh is going to be. And look, I don't deny it at all that Michigan is now a top 10 program, but so far he's not finished better than third in the Big Ten East. Jim Harbaugh right now, 20-6, and 13-4 in the Big Ten, but he's lost at least two games in the Big Ten every season that he has been at Michigan. Back-to-back 10-3 and three seasons. All right, think about that. Larger context, back-to-back two lost seasons in the Big Ten. Meanwhile, Jim McElwain has gone 19, and I believe he's gone 19-8. and 9-4, and 9-4. and four. One game worse than Jim Harbaugh in both seasons. A lot of Florida Gator fans a little bit uncomfortable with what's going on with McIlwain so far at Florida. He's won the East both seasons. He's gone 13-3 and in the SEC. So Jim McIlwain has had a better record in the SEC. And in fact, if you knock out the two SEC title games that he has lost, he's gone 10-4 and and 9-4. and If you knock out the two SEC title games that he's lost, he would have effectively the exact same schedule, exact same record through two seasons as Jim Harbaugh. Right now, Michigan around a three and a half or four point favorite in this game 
that will be taking place, I believe, in Dallas, neutral site field there at Jerry World. 3.30 Eastern afternoon kickoff on Saturday. Think about what happens if Jim McElwain wins this game. First of all, it's a massive win for the SEC, right? For the depth of the SEC, if Jim McElwain and the Florida Gators can beat Jim Harbaugh and the Michigan Wolverines. Secondly, listen to Florida's schedule. If they get past Michigan, they play Northern Colorado win. They play Tennessee at home in Gainesville, should be a win. They go to Kentucky. They have not lost to Kentucky in over 30 years. Should be a win. I think it's going to be a tight game, and I might well gamble on Kentucky to cover, but I'm not going to bet on Kentucky to beat Florida for the first time. And check, Jason Martin, check and see how many years in a row that's bet. It's the longest yearly win-loss streak in college football right now. I think it's like 34 years, something like that, between Kentucky and Florida. I don't think they've beaten Florida since 1986. I think I'm correct in that which would be 32 years or whatever. Look up how many years it's been since they – so I I feel good about the Gators in that game. I got it. How many years? 30 years. 30 years in a row. So the last time that they lost – I'm right, 1986? Um, It's like 87. 87 was the last time Kentucky beat – that's a crazy stat. 1987 was the last time Kentucky beat the Florida Gators. It's the fifth fifth longest consecutive win streak – in history between one school and another school. And it's the longest. Let me see. That's a good question. How many of those can I get? I think that the longest streaks ever. I think Nebraska won like 40 in a row over Missouri. Is that in there? Uh, it's close. Nebraska beat Kansas 36 times in a row. Missouri's in there too, isn't it? Didn't Nebraska beat Missouri that many uh, years uh, in a row That too? was 24 times. All right, 24 times. Um, let's see. Other, other longest winning longest running win streaks got is kansas in there multiple times oklahoma had to be kansas a lot of games um not in this particular list oklahoma's in here a couple of different times on the winning side but not against kansas who's worse than that i can't even imagine so who are the what's the longest right. streaks notre dame and navy 43 times yeah i remember that that was 64 to 06 nebraska yep. kansas we just mentioned was 36 oklahoma and kansas state was 32 times that was 1937 to 68 and then penn state and temple 31 times that ended in 2014 okay um so you look at that situation consecutive years the longest consecutive win streak currently existing so I'm saying why this could be big for Florida if they beat Michigan they're going to beat Northern Colorado I think they'll beat Tennessee I think they'll beat Kentucky they'll beat Vanderbilt then LSU comes to Gainesville that's the game that they gave up uh that they uh that they gave up over the hurricane then Texas A&M comes to Gainesville I think there's a very good chance that if Florida beats Michigan they will be sitting at 7-0 and with their bye week arriving, and then they'll be going to the cocktail party against Georgia with a chance to win the SEC East effectively because then they close with at Missouri should be a win, at South Carolina should be a win, UAB, and then they get Florida State and Gainesville. So you look at this schedule, Florida, I mean, the University of Florida only really has for their road games at Kentucky at Missouri, and at South Carolina. If they can beat Michigan, Florida is a legitimate national title contender. Now, I'm not saying they're going to be great. I'm not saying they're going to be extraordinary. 
But you look at this schedule. I like to look at schedules and see whether or not teams can get on a roll. If Florida beats Michigan, I think they will be 7-0 and waiting on their bye week against Georgia. Because, again, the only road game they play in those next six games are at Kentucky. They got five games in Gainesville. And then in the second half of their season, at Missouri, Missouri's not going to be very good. And at South Carolina, Gamecocks are going to be improved. But I still see Florida as having a legitimate chance to be undefeated with Florida State coming to town. It would be like back in the day, top matchup against Florida State. All right, so that's the, that's the argument for why this game is massive for Florida. For Michigan, let's look at Michigan's schedule. They open with Florida. And then it gets insanely easy. Cincinnati, Air Force, at Purdue, Michigan State, at Indiana. Tell me that Michigan is not going to be 6-0 and going to Penn State on October 21st if they beat Florida. I don't think there's any doubt. Then they go to Penn State. They handled Penn State this past year. Penn State's going to be good. That's a tough game, no doubt. Then they get Rutgers and Minnesota in the big house. They'll win both those games. At Maryland, they'll win it. And then they finished with two really tough games at Wisconsin and against Ohio State in the big game. But if Michigan beats Florida, then they're in a great shape. Whoever wins this game is going to be a national title contender, in my opinion. Whoever loses this game, yes, the, the schedule is still somewhat favorable early on, but the bloom's going to be off the Jim Harbaugh Rose if he loses to Florida. Because then you look at this schedule and say, man, they have to go to Penn State, they have to go to Wisconsin, and they have to play Ohio State. Even if they went 2-1 and one in those games, which is be a great situation, they'd still have two losses. Makes it a little bit hard to think about getting into the playoff. Moreover, Jim McElwain would effectively, at that point in time, be 20-8, and eight, and Harbaugh would be 20-7. and seven. I know they played in a, in a uh, bowl game, but effectively, you'd have to say that McIlwain had done the exact same thing at Florida that Jim Harbaugh has done at Michigan, except he's actually won his division twice. Would we have to take a step back and say, man, we drastically overrated Jim Harbaugh and drastically underrated Jim McIlwain? I think that's true. I think this is a massive swing game for both programs, big strong branded programs, Florida and Michigan, two of the top 10 teams, I think, certainly in the country when it comes to their programs. But a big verdict coming on Jim Harbaugh and Jim McElwain. Which of the gyms has their program in better shape in year three? Harbaugh wins. You feel good about his chances to contend for a Big Ten championship and also a national championship. McElwain wins. You feel good about his chances to win the SEC East for a third straight year. I think that's going to surprise a lot of people. I think when when you hear that Jim Harbaugh is twenty and six, and that Jim McElwain is nineteen and eight, and if McElwain beats Harbaugh, they'll effectively have the same record at the start of their careers. I think that surprises a lot of people because everybody has praised Jim Harbaugh as modern day second coming of Jesus for college football. Meanwhile, nobody is that impressed at all with Jim McElwain. Fox Sports Radio has the best sports talk lineup in the nation. Catch all of our shows at foxsportsradio.com and within the iHeartRadio app. Fox Sports Radio. 
Ladies and gentlemen. I'm just glad I was there. Boys and girls. I thought he thought I was like this ginormous piece of chicken. Dying times here. I have a bullet from strict respect to my face. And you have a what? This is Animal Thunderdome. All sorts of craziness from the floods in Houston. I have seen alligator pictures you guys have been sending me. I have seen snake videos. I have seen floating fire ants. It is hell in the water going on right now down in Houston. Maybe the worst flood in the history of the United States. That's the report, right? And so we wish all of you the Animal Thunderdome is real. Be careful out there. The waters are around you in Houston and in the state of Texas in general, and it is going to be impossible to escape the animals. What you got, Jason Martin? Out in anti-Chick-fil-A territory, home of one Danny G. Coop and Eddie Garcia, a California couple summoned animal control to their children's backyard playhouse to remove 19 rattlesnakes. Oh, Amanda Friedrich of the College Heights neighborhood in Ridgecrest said she and her husband heard a rattling noise in their yard on Wednesday, initially thought it was a loose pipe until they spotted an adult rattlesnake poking its head out from their children's plastic playhouse. So they watched the snake, guarded with a shovel, waiting for animal control, and then they realized that it was not alone. They noticed one small baby in the play gym, And then realized, wait, there's probably not just one. They ended up capturing a total of 18 babies, as well as the mother sidewinder rattlesnake in about an hour after animal control got there. The baby's a little bit small, but they're still rattlesnakes. And the mother was concerned because her child had been playing in that gym like hours before this situation. And this is the part where I need clarification and maybe people to be fired. The officer said the snake family was released into the desert. Kill him. Outside the city limits. Yeah, kill him. I'm going to tell you this right now. First of all, what city is this? It's uh, it's Ridgecrest, California. Ridgecrest. Yeah, it, there's, you, a, Danny. there's a base out that way. It's basically in the middle of a desert. Why would you allow 19 rattlesnakes to go free? How about one? I mean, I mean, first of all, the baby rattlesnakes, in my understanding, is are some of the most dangerous snakes to get bitten by because they can't control their venom. So when they bite you, if a smaller rattlesnake, like a baby, bites you, it lets every bit of its venom go. So your the the severity, my understanding is of an of a baby rattlesnake bite is potentially even worse than an adult. But if you catch nineteen rattlesnakes, you know how many rattlesnakes you kill? Nineteen. Yeah. I mean, it, the fact that you did not kill these rattlesnakes is... Where, where is this? It's the middle of nowhere? Desert, California? Yeah. yeah Ridgecrest, right? It, let's put it this way. It's it, it's the part of California's desert where it's 107 degrees by 7 a.m. It's insane out that way. And so you see snakes out there all the time. Yeah. Well, you should have seen 17 or 18 less. Do you have a plastic playhouse at home? I, 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 do, I cannot even... Yeah, I do. I don't have you a plastic get rid one. of it. But right, I got it. That's good. I've got like a wooden playground for my kids in the backyard. Yeah, I'm not kidding. If I found out that there were 18 rattlesnakes under there, I think I would sell my house. I would too. According I don't know how to, they. I'm oh, sorry. According to Animal Control, wooden play structures as opposed to hollow plastic playhouses don't give snakes an opportunity to make their way into tight spaces and nest. So, public service announcement here from Outkick to coverage: If you have a plastic playhouse, might be time to. Uh, 
cut that beast and go with a wooden one. So you're in good shape, Clay. You're in better shape, certainly, than this woman and her 19 rattlesnakes in the same gym that her child was playing in like hours or a day before. This is, this is like nightmare fuel of a different level. I mean, I don't even know what I would do if I came out. And I, I mean, like, the, the thought, like, makes me, like, like hair stand up on my arms. Like, if suddenly I have a two-year-old, if my, suddenly my two-year-old is surrounded by 19 rattlesnakes, I just, I can't even imagine what that would be like. And I can't believe that they caught those snakes and then just released them into the wild. The only good rattlesnake is a dead rattlesnake. Again, I apologize for being a snakist, but I don't understand why America would be a worse place if there were no snakes. I think America would be a better place. My world, there's no snakes. Be sure to catch live editions of Outkick, the coverage with Clay Travis weekdays at 6 a.m. Eastern, 3 a.m. Pacific. Britt, I'll start with this. You covered the NFL for a long time. I've been making the argument that there are four athletes who have transcended their sport, right? Mm -hmm. That they are so massive that... What they do doesn't matter. Conor McGregor, I would argue, with the UFC is one. He can come into boxing, create a huge sell. People care about him. Tiger Woods in golf, Michael Jordan in basketball, and The Rock with WWE slash wrestling. In other words, all four of those guys have existed and could exist outside of their primary sport as luminescent superstars. Anybody in football, I think it's Brady or Manning, and my argument would be Manning. Anybody else that you would think makes sense there? I have to agree with you on taking Peyton Manning over Tom Brady in terms of any sort of work that would make an an impact in the community. Uh, I don't know. You know, Peyton Manning is very careful with his image. I don't know if in reality it's it's that perfectly uh, taken care of and and sculpted (laughs) as he he I think Peyton Manning has, like a lot of people, a few skeletons in his closet, right? But I think in general, like, you know, he's not going to get Tiger Woods now. I don't think so. But Tiger Woods, people, like, for most of his life, right? Like, Michael Jordan certainly was not, like, the, the perfect family father figure, perfect husband. And he got away with it because we had that different lifestyle that we were willing to accept back then. Now, like, the disconnect between public and private gets blown up a little bit more. Yeah, and, and Michael Jordan also had the benefit that there was no internet or social yes. media. So he literally controlled the media. It's fascinating because I've, I've read a lot of books on him. Who doesn't love Michael Jordan? And he, he truly controlled the message in Chicago because he wouldn't talk to you. He did that to Sports Illustrated and a few other outlets, especially Sports Illustrated, where they ran that huge article about him uh, going to baseball. He never spoke to them story. again. Never spoke to them again. You know what I it just thought of when you were mentioning that? An athlete that's really intrigued me, or former athlete, in terms of the shift in public perception has been A-Rod. Yeah. Because it was just a few years ago where he was suspended, wasn't talking to anybody, was, was sort of blackballed from society. And now you see him at the fight with Jennifer Lopez on his arm, on a plane with Robert Kraft. I mean, he's... He's doing a great job as an announcer at Fox, so I think that shift has impressed me as well, that he's really sort of transcended baseball now, post-baseball. By the way, I don't understand how it's possible, but how is J-Lo still so incredibly good-looking? Like, when they put her on the screen during the Mayweather-McGregor fight, she's (laughs) as hot now as she was 20 years ago. Is that just incredible genes? Is that incredible? Like my wife said, oh, no, she's been having work done on her for a long time. And that may well be true. 
But it usually when people have work done, like you can see them. Like I went, I went and saw Britney Spears, right? And I got my mm-hmm. picture taken with her. And Britney Spears is not that old. She's like you know, 33, 34, whatever she is. But like you can tell that she's had substantial work done. When I yeah. see J-Lo, she doesn't look like she's had stuff done at all. I mean, what do you think's going on there? How is she so perfect still? I think she has great genes. And I think that she's probably lived a healthier lifestyle. She was a little bit older when she got really famous at like yeah. 28. So perhaps like she got... She went through that childhood rebellious stage that Britney Spears went through, but without all the money and resources in the world to really go hard at it. So I think that it's it's a combination of all those factors. I agree with your wife, though. I mean, how do you look that great? <laughs> I mean, she's like 45 anything. years old, right? I mean, how old is J-Lo now? She's, I mean, she's not yeah. that far from 50. Yeah, uh, yeah, she might even be higher than 45. I, she's like the Bob Costas of music oh she doesn't age i mean she's amazing um and so i'm actually curious somebody look up how old jennifer lopez she's 48. is 48 48 that's my insane. god i mean that isn't but there's a couple like and obviously i do think that women are better looking now than they ever have been before like every mm-hmm. woman that like my wife is friends with like they're all smoking hot moms maybe it's because i'm getting older but i don't remember moms being as good looking when i was a kid Right? Like, women are a lot better looking now than they like. They're in better shape. Like, they all work out better. They eat healthier and everything else. Like, this kind of ties in with my theory that, you know, Tom Brady's 40. But if you, Brit, if you saw Tom Brady out at the bar, how old would you think he was if you had never uh, heard of him before? Like, he looks like a 33 or 32 year yeah. old guy, right? Yeah, early 30s. Right? I mean, there's no way you would think he was 40. And Mayweather, Mayweather fought last night. And I mean, he fought at his lowest weight. Like, if you saw Floyd Mayweather out, you wouldn't think, I don't believe, that he's 40 years old. I mean, people are able to take care of their bodies better. And Federer's 36, and he may well win the U.S. Open. Like, it's a different universe and world now than maybe it was even 20 or 30 years ago. I mean, maybe J-Lo's an aberration, but 48-year-old women, like, I mean, that's unbelievable for her to look like she does at 48. Jason Worth, too, the national outfielder, is 39 yeah. Someone pointed that out to me the other day, how he might get one more year once the season's done, or he's pushing for it. And I, and he looks younger. And no he's doubt. played that way when he's healthy, so it's incredible. All right, we're talking to Britt McHenry, and last night was the Game of Thrones finale, uh, episode seven of season seven. And it was pretty incredible. All right, so mm-hmm. on the hotness scale, how uncomfortable were you? Spoiler alert, spoiler alert out there for everybody who might not have watched it. Uh, how uncomfortable were you with the sex appeal versus the recognition that while they had sex for the first time, Daenerys and Jon Snow, a.k.a. Aegon Targaryen, were actually aunt and nephew having sex? Did that impact? Like, were you cringing when you watched that scene? Because they revealed the incest definitely as they hooked up for the first time live on air. I think it would be different if, A, we weren't already used to it in the show, and B... (laughs) Um, those two actors respectively have become so big both on the show and outside of it that I just looked at it more through that prism of these are just two really famous actors and characters that we've been rooting for. I actually am probably going to sound like a creep right now. I was kind of disappointed with that. You wanted it to be sexier. Like when, like more like, yeah, more sizzle there. Yeah. Like the, the gray worm, (laughs) was way longer and this is like again the two favorite characters of the show it just it sort of fast forwarded through 
a huge buildup we all expected. But you could say that, as we've talked about many times in the past couple of weeks, quite about the entire season, is it's just fast-forwarding through stuff that is so good. <laughs> it's really bothering me. Britt McHenry calls in one of the longer sex scene between Daenerys and uh, Jon <laughs> yeah. Snow. Uh, yeah, so, <laughs> the, uh, the situation in general. So it was an incredible episode. I am arguing that even though I love him and even though he's become an instrumental part of the show, there are two things that I would like to have seen in this episode that didn't happen last night. I would have liked to. I'm over Theon, right? Like, I don't care yeah. about Theon's role. I wish that he had gotten killed in his fight with the uh, with the other Iron Islands people, and I think if Cersei had killed Jamie last night when she said like no one walks away from me or whatever, and then she allows him to walk away from her, if she had had the mountain kill him right there, that would have been an oh my god moment, like when Ned Stark got decapitated at the end of season one, and we would have entered season eight, then like oh my god, all bets are off, no one is safe. As is, I feel like the major characters are safe because we haven't had somebody significant die in years and stay dead. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, it would have been really unexpected and really poignant if they did that. I think that's reflective of, again, the, the show being past the books now. Um, I, didn't, I didn't think about that. It was a powerful scene. I, I still think that Jamie's going to be the one who's going to kill Cersei, though. I agree with He's that. Down. Yeah. So I think they wanted to create a scene of tension to foreshadow that. But we, we can't continue say I just love the scene with Tyrion and Cersei. Oh, my God. It was so good. Those those two actors are so incredible. There are very few people on, on television that could pull off that scene at the, the, the way that they did it. I mean, it was just flat-out phenomenal. Yeah, so, so that, that was a highlight and an underrated part of the finale for me. I also think, and I don't know why, but it just stood out to me when Daenerys and John were in the dragon pit, and Daenerys went on her little speech about how the Targaryens were nothing without the dragons, how they put them in captivity, and once they lost the dragons and they were extinct, they lost their, their throne, essentially. I just have this feeling that the show is going to end, and no people listening, I, have, I, I really don't know at this point, but it's just a gut feeling that somehow she will get pregnant and it will be the, the heir to the throne, the true king will be their child. And it's going to fast forward to that. And I have a feeling that Drogon will be the last dragon standing with their child. Do you think that that's too happy of an ending for Game of Thrones? See, my, my, my feeling in general is that we have seen so much off so many awful things happen that having something positive like that happen like I just don't necessarily buy into the fact that George R. R. Martin and Game of Thrones creators are going to give us a happy bow on the happily thereafter segment right I feel like something mm-hmm. dark has to be coming it, I and that's a good point if it is if it is that way or a more positive ending it's going to be at the hands like just when you think it's going to be perfectly wrapped up Daenerys will be killed or something. There has to be some huge upsetting element to the show if it, if it ends that way. But at this point, I think we're in no man's land. Nobody really knows. We're past the books. I've been searching for leaks everywhere. <laughs> right. I don't know. So um, how else do you think it could end? Well, see, here's what I find unfulfilling about this season. I thought the whole season was phenomenal, and I really enjoyed it. But my biggest issue is... 
not, nothing with the dragon, the ice dragon makes sense, right? The more I think nothing. about the plot associated yeah. with it, the only reason. So the biggest flaw that I see right now is that if Jon Snow had never cared about the White Walkers at all, they would have been better off because they would not have been able to get across the wall, right? Unless yeah. there's some other way they could get across the wall. So his decision to go try to capture a White Walker to bring it back to convince people was an entirely created plot point to allow the White Walkers to get an ice dragon, right? Which then allows yeah. them to bring down the wall. So for me, the flaw here is I need to, like, there's no reason for, if they had never cared about the White Walkers at all, then theoretically south of the wall, everybody would have remained safe because they would have never been able to bring the wall down without the ice dragon, right? And so mm-hmm. that, to me, is a huge flaw that I have a big issue with associated with the plot points of Season 7. I think what George R. R. Martin did such a good job was the first several years of Thrones, everything tied together perfectly because he spends years writing these meticulously planned books. I think yeah. they've rushed through this now, and the plot points just don't tie together. It's true. Um, I, I like It just bothers me with that dragon. I tweeted that last night because – Seriously, how would they have gotten past the wall? I mean, they had no way to get through it. Um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to think about what else stood out to me in that episode. Of course, Arya and Sansa now and, and, and Bran, like that's a trio you don't want to mess with. <laughs> yeah, and Littlefinger finally ran out of words. I thought the way that Arya killed him was fantastic. Um, but in general, I, like, I'm excited for season eight, uh, but uh-huh. I'm not sure exactly whether I trust the final vision because this one was not as expertly crafted as prior seasons have been. No, and everything with travel doesn't yes, make, didn't sense. make sense. It has been really accelerated, um, but it just it was so good. I can't believe we have to wait another year now. <laughs> at least, at least another year. Britt, we will talk to you soon. We need to get you on weekly. Are you willing to come on with us weekly while you sure. uh, keep- all right, we'll try to get you on weekly for sure here. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Hey, it's Jonas Knox. The best athletes don't just play the game, they change it. When it comes to investing, GameBridge is doing the same. Their online platform does things differently because it's designed to put you in charge of growing your own savings. It's intuitive, it's easy, and best of all, it's on your terms. No wonder GameBridge has earned the trust of 40% repeat customers. It's a better way to invest because it's investing your way. Get started today with as little as $1,000 at GameBridge.io. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Whether it's your first time betting or you've been gambling for years, have a plan and know the game. Be aware of the rules and odds before you gamble. Set a budget and never gamble with money you can't afford to lose. 
take a break and consider teaming up with trusted friends to help you stick to your budget. Remember, if you or a loved one has a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER 24-7 or go to helpmygamblingproblem.org for free confidential services. 